0: Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we will explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation.
1: Welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I'm Ron Flagg, President of the Legal Services Corporation. I'm excited to welcome today Nicole Nelson, Dr. Robert Anders, and Rebecca Sandifer. Nicole is the Executive Director of Alaska Legal Services Corporation, Alaska's only statewide provider of free civil legal aid. Bob is Medical Director for Maniloc Health Corporation in Alaska. Bob, who has a law degree as well as his medical degree, has been a leader in promoting health care among Alaska's indigenous population and also in integrating the provision of health and legal services. Becky is a professor at Arizona State University. In 2018, she was named a MacArthur Fellow for her work on inequality and access to justice. In awarding that fellowship, the MacArthur Foundation said, and I quote, by bridging legal scholarship and practice, Sandifer is providing the empirical evidence necessary to guide and implement wide-scale reforms to address the civil legal needs of low-income people, end quote. Uh, Nicole, Bob, and Becky, thanks so much for joining me. And today we're talking about One of those reforms to address civil legal needs, more specifically, an innovative new program recently approved by the Alaska Supreme Court, opening the door for community justice workers, that's the term of art, and these are non-lawyers who are trained and supervised by Nicole's team at Alaska Legal Services to provide limited legal assistance on behalf of Alaska Legal Services clients as a means of addressing the lack of lawyers in Alaska's remote and isolated communities. Now, this new program in our conversation today uh, arises in the context of the justice gap. The justice gap is the enormous gulf between the civil legal needs of low-income Americans and the resources available to meet those needs. In 2022, LSC published our Justice Gap study showing that a staggering 92 percent, that's 92 percent, of the significant legal problems faced by low income Americans are met with no or inadequate assistance. The justice gap in Alaska is made even more acute by the remote and isolated nature of Alaska's population. So let's sort of set the table for the rest of the discussion. Nicole and Bob, can you describe the barriers to providing legal and other services in Alaska?
2: Uh, Sure, Ron, and thanks so much for having us. One of the things I always like to point out when we start talking about Alaska and, you know, our service area that our program, Alaska Legal Services, covers, you know, we are statewide program And we provide services, our scope is to provide services throughout the entire state of Alaska. Alaska is huge. It is bigger than the next three states combined. So that is California, Texas, and Montana combined. And we also have a really low population density. So we, our population I think is below 750,000 people. About half of those are in the more urban areas and road connected communities. And the balance are scattered in smaller hub and remote villages that are not connected to any road system. So we have 90% of communities that don't have access to a road system. You need to fly into them or go by boat or snow machine. And our service area, too, is incredibly diverse. We are proudly home to 229 tribal nations. That's about 40% of the tribes within the U.S. And In Anchorage, in the more urban areas, they are incredibly diverse as well. There are over 100 different languages spoken in the Anchorage School District, which puts it in the top five most diverse school districts in the nation. So we're dealing with an incredibly big and complicated service area that has a very thin infrastructure in a lot of places and also a limited workforce. Is there anything you would add, Bob?
0: Like what Nicole touched on, you know, and I think about this from the healthcare setting, 200 plus remote villages across Alaska with an average population of around 250 people per village. Um, So limited from a service delivery standpoint, there's certain economies of scale in order to provide services to those smaller villages across the state that you can't do uh, without having alternate kind of innovative programs in order to deliver those services. And like Nicole touched on, Alaska has the highest proportion of the indigenous population of any state in the United States, and the language diversity here is incredible. And the indigenous languages, so many of the people that were serving, their first language that they learned was an indigenous language, and there aren't formalized translator services available to provide those uh, translations that are needed or to be connected to those people in the language they're most comfortable with.
2: I would also add, we also struggle in some of our remote areas with connectivity, um, broadband access, and other infrastructure services. So, you know, these are really consistent barriers across the board. And we also have a really a centralized delivery system uh, for most state services. So, you know, they're in our remote communities. Oftentimes there's not a court, there are not local police or other sort of, justice or other infrastructure-related services that most people come to expect. But I do want to say um, and just point out as well that while these particular features are unique and really escalated in Alaska, we face the same problems that I think every other legal aid I've ever met faces to some degree, which is there are far too many people who are asking us for our help than we're able to provide services to well, I do think that Alaska has some extreme challenges, um, I've seen the, these same challenges reflected across the board to some degree in the other programs across the nation.
1: Nicole, just so to serve uh, an area, you know, greater than the size of the next three states, including uh, California, Texas, and, and Montana, how many lawyers and other professionals do you have to send out uh, across that area, either in person or by technology to the extent there's connectivity?
2: Yeah, so when we are fully staffed, which is rare in these times, uh, we have about 60 total staff members at Alaska Legal Services. So that includes our administrative staff that are really important in helping us keep our law firm operating. And then we have probably about 30-plus attorneys and then other uh, advocates who help us get our work done.
1: Wow, those numbers are are pretty... uh, Daunting. So tell us, how does this new Community Justice Worker Program work, and how does it address the barriers and challenges to providing legal aid to Alaskans, uh, many of which you
2: just described? Yeah, so the Community Justice Worker Program got its start in, so Bob and I started working on it, um, I want to say in 2017, and it really was born out of a medical-legal partnership that Alaska Legal Services engaged with with the tribally operated healthcare system. And I just want to step back for a second and talk about how we got to that place, which was part of Alaska's Access to Justice Commission did a study where they were looking at sort of how we were going to address our justice gap. And I'd like to call that actually a full-fledged justice crisis. It's not a gap. We are failing miserably. It is, our justice systems are not meeting the needs of any of the people who need them. So it's a full-on crisis. It's not just a gap. And so we came together as a community to try to better understand what our justice infrastructure looked like and how we might be able to make some advances. And what we learned through that study was that A, Alaska Legal Services was the most referred to entity in the state when people had a legal problem, but we were coming nowhere near meeting the need. And although we were doing a pretty good job of covering some services in our remote and rural communities, we were just not getting as much, you know, our remote and rural communities were not getting the same amount of services as those in the more urban areas. And one reason for that is that most of the lawyers, which will probably surprise no one, are located in Anchorage and Fairbanks and the road connected communities. And so there are these vast legal deserts, uh, for lack of another word, in our remote communities. And this was really hampering um, people's access to uh, justice in those communities. So we combined with the the healthcare system, hoping that we could embed our attorneys in the healthcare system as a means of being improving the availability of services to clients in remote areas. And actually, that journey of us combining and building the medical legal partnership really opened our eyes about what we were actually trying to achieve. And I want Bob to talk a little bit here about. We learned about the work that the healthcare community had been doing in stratifying the practice of medicine over the last 40 years and expanding its reach into really remote and isolated communities. And so we decided to, you know, build a model that was similar to the approach that the Alaska Tribal Healthcare Consortium and a tribally operated health system have been taking for over 40 years.
0: Yeah. And I think that goes into, you know, how the healthcare system has evolved to provide you know, address the challenges that we you touched on with your first question, Ron. And I think it's uh, this combination of team-based care. So we have to do it with extenders and others in smaller communities. It's not feasible to have a physician in a community of 250 people. It's not feasible uh, for us to um, provide that service in a meaningful way or to travel out there regularly because the expenses are exorbitant to do that. So it. The idea of having community-based providers that are culturally appropriate, so many of them come from the community, know that the languages of the community, and providing them with competency-based training to provide the level of service that's equivalent to what they would receive in other areas, but doing that through a team-based model and with uh, adequate training.
2: And so once we understood how the Tribally Operated Healthcare System had been pursuing, you know, more community-based and culturally connected workforce, we wanted to see if that might work to meet folks' legal needs. And so we partnered with ANTHC and the Alaska Pacific University to develop training programs for community advocates that are recruited and trained in local communities that would help them address common legal problems that we were seeing that were not getting addressed and that would not run afoul of the unauthorized practice of law prohibitions under our state law. And so those were in areas of like SNAP and food stamp, public assistance denials, debt collection avoidance and domestic violence protection orders and estate planning and Indian Child Welfare Act cases. So we developed these training programs. We started recruiting volunteers to help with them under the training and supervision of Alaska Legal Services staff. And we ended up recruiting over 100 additional people so that, again, almost doubles our staff in 40 different communities who could help address these unmet legal needs. And over the course of time, we developed training modules that were in conjunction with the communities that were being served. So they are culturally appropriate and and make sense. They were designed to help people understand and empower local communities to understand their rights, to know their rights, and to be able to actualize them. So fast forward, we got to the point where we thought, you know, it would be really great if we could upskill some of these workers and design programs that would allow folks to take on parts of legal practice That would run afoul of the unauthorized practice of law prohibition but of course we needed to get a waiver in place or we needed to get some uh, some support from our bar association and the alaska supreme court to change the rules that would prohibit people who aren't lawyers for providing this type of legal assistance and so just a few months ago uh with support full support from our board the board of governors of the alaska bar association Um, And our Alaska Supreme Court, they've approved a rule that will allow us to upskill the community justice worker program so that we can train folks who aren't lawyers to provide some limited scope legal practice. And we hope that through this program, we'll be able to provide more access to justice to folks who otherwise wouldn't be able to enforce their rights.
1: Well, that's tremendous. And I, I think both the program that you've initiated as well as the approach you took in getting the program approved, particularly by the bar, as well as by the court, I hope will serve as a model. And I I actually want to come back uh, in a few moments to your thoughts on that process and how you did it. But before we do that, I want to turn to Becky, and I'd like to begin by broadening the conversation a bit. Becky, is the challenge of optimally and fairly distributing Relatively scarce, fundamental human services, unique to legal services, or Bob, you know, we've talked also about uh, health services. Uh, are these unique areas where those challenges exist?
3: Unfortunately, no. Laws in, in good company in uh, require, you know, a certain amount of skill and training. And in needing for efficient production of services, some of the economies of scale that Dr. Anders alluded to. And probably the marquee example of how we've had challenges in that kind of distribution of really essential services and come a long way to overcoming them is medicine. Back before I was born, but not that long ago, physicians were the only people who could perform most medical services in an authorized way. And people realized pretty quickly that there just weren't enough of them in some instances, or they weren't in the right places. So they were in places with big population centers, but not in smaller population centers or in rural areas. And so people had to be really creative and think about how can we identify other kinds of ways of providing medical services that are essential to people's health and their lives and distribute them to places where we can't get physicians to be for a whole range of reasons. And it was that in part that brought us to where we are now, where there are lots of different kinds of qualified medical care providers some of whom are working under the supervision of other medical care providers, but some of whom are working independently. So many people who are listening to this podcast might have gone to a nurse practitioner and got a prescription for something or to a physician's assistant and received some kind of treatment. And we've been doing that now for decades, and it's a a fantastic way of providing targeted care that's proportionate to what people need, but that can be distributed much more easily around lots of different kinds of spaces. So, I think medicine gives us a nice example of how we might do this in other kinds of arenas of life like law.
1: So, the justice gap, or as uh, Nicole more appropriately labeled it, the justice crisis, really is quite staggering. And given the dimensions of that challenge, Becky, when decision makers think about the justice crisis in their state or their county or their town, you know, what should they have in mind? Often they have in mind, you know, the limitations, uh, you know, the, the need to protect consumers from uh, people who are not properly trained. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, I think that Alaska is a really great inspiration for how we might, some some basic principles we might use when we think about how to, to meet these needs. So one is to be really creative, to, to start with the problem you're trying to solve, which is you have people who need this essential service or this essential assistance, and they can't get it the way we provide it now. So what are the other ways we can create ways to fill that need? And that's what Alaska is doing with community justice workers. I think the other thing to think about, and this is another thing that the folks in Alaska have done in a really inspiring way, what is already there that you can build on? So the health system through extenders is already reaching into many of these communities and can be a conduit for other kinds of services. If you look at other efforts that have happened in the continental U.S., People have recognized that faith communities are a really important place that people go to when they have legal issues, even though they may not know those are legal issues. And so then how can those communities be sort of a frontline entry point for people who need legal assistance among the other kinds of help that they need? So thinking about starting with the problem, which is people need this help, and what are the ways we can produce that help that might be new? And what already exists that lets us connect to people where they already are, particularly through ways that are trusted— So that they can get access to the help that they need, that's culturally appropriate, that arrives at a time when they need it, when they realize they're in trouble. And I think Alaska is, as I said, a really inspiring example of a great way to do that.
1: Well, Becky, you're working on a steering committee helping the folks in Alaska to to scale their community justice program. What factors is your committee considering or should it be considering in, in thinking about how to scale this sort of program?
3: Well, I think when when we're thinking about how to scale these things and to scale them in a sustainable way, one thing is that you want to have you want to authorize people to do things that are actually useful. Um and that's what Alaska has done through the agreement between the the support of the bar and the support of the Supreme Court in allowing the training of people who are not traditionally qualified lawyers to give legal services. So that's one thing. So how can we actually allow a service that's of value? Cuz otherwise who wants it and who needs it and why would it scale? But I think Another thing to think about is how are you going to pay for this? And, you know, philanthropic and government funding are incredibly important sources of support for for legal aid services. I think one thing we're going to want to think about, particularly when we're moving into populations that may not be eligible for fully subsidized services but can't get lawyer services either for a range of reasons, how can we allow other kinds of business models that would let those things scale and let the people who work in those jobs make a living – serving in communities and doing that work. So I think those are pretty critical things that Alaska again as I think showing us a great a great way forward towards.
1: Well, as I said before and it's come up subsequently as Becky was was speaking similar initiatives which are being proposed throughout the country are often or at least on occasion met with opposition from bar leaders and even some legal aid lawyers Generally, you know, with the concern that permitting non-lawyers, even trained non-lawyers to provide assistance uh, might create two tiers of quality with uh, second-class legal help being available to uh, people living in poverty. Uh, Nicole, uh, you've spent your career serving people living in poverty throughout Alaska. What's your reaction to that concern and how did you deal with it in working with the bar in Alaska?
2: Well, I I would say a couple of things. First off, you know, just acknowledging, I think anyone who's been working in this system or is aware of it at all, you know, it's it's really broken. We have 92% of people who need legal help or have legal issues are not using the system that is designed to give that help for that purpose. So it's broken and people are, you know, just iced out of the civil justice system and they're not able to use it. So to the extent that anyone thinks that there isn't already a two-tiered system of justice that's in place, you know, I think the, the evidence suggests otherwise. And so I think our, you know, the civil justice system for the people that I am interested in serving is so fundamentally broken for on a systemic level that I'm unafraid of trying new things. I think that what we are doing already is not working. It's clearly not working. And so it's time for us to think about different ways of doing that. And then I would also say one other thing. You know, I, I don't know if you know my legal aid, my fellow legal aid providers know this, but I read some interesting articles recently that talked about the origins of legal aid services. And it turns out that, and this is not something that I knew, but the original legal aid providers were in New York and in Boston were started by non-lawyers who had been, they were people who were, you know, excluded from the bar associations because of their race or gender. And they were providing help to other community members on wage issues. And so it wasn't really until later that legal aid started being provided by lawyers. I mean, it really was something that was community driven and involved those who had, who were closest to the problems, included them in the solutions. So I do think that the system is broken. I think the system that we're designing here has the ability to provide, you know, really quality legal services that will help people get the legal solutions that they want. But I also think the fact that we are, you know, I think we miss the notions of justice a bit when we require that we have highly credentialed folks stepping in as intermediaries for those who would seek justice. And I think that we might come up with different solutions if we were more closely involving those who are closest to the problem in the design of those solutions. So all that to say, from my perspective, I think that the justice crisis calls for innovation and change. Our system is clearly not working and, you know, I think that historically we can look back at even illegal aid providers and how we've tried to address this problem. And, you know, our history shows that we have the ability to do that without exclusionary processes and limiting it only to highly credential professionals.
0: And I think Becky touched on this too. I, th- I think the healthcare system, we wouldn't survive without did I mean, you can't think of a world that the healthcare system and the community health aid program is unique in Alaska, but... Advanced practice providers, nurse practitioners and physician assistants, I think many times provide better care than if you were to, if you're seeing them for the right reasons and they're within their scope of service. I don't think it's a lesser service. I think it's actually an enhancement of the service that we're delivering because many times the advanced practice providers and in our community health aid program in Alaska. They have a limited scope, so they know that scope very well. And they have the capacity to spend the additional time with the person that they're seeing in order to deliver that service that I think many times is equivalent to a physician or better than a physician. And the physicians are used in their correct roles in that system where there it is a, a team-based system. So I, d- I don't think it develops a two-tier system. I think it actually enhances, kind of raises all the boats in the water.
1: And the opposition of... You know, in the case of the the uh, legal profession, the organized bar, and in the case of the medical profession, the organized medical provider associations, not unique to law. Can you tell us, Bob, about how the American Dental Association rea- reacted to the dental health therapist program?
0: Yeah, and, and even the AMA with the community health aid program, which, you know, is much older than the dental health aid or the dental therapy program. You know, the community health aid program was named such to not bring the the AMA against the medical providers, even though they are physician extenders, they strategically named it health aid program in order to not offend the AMA in saying we're creating another provider type and with the ADA, that was, uh, you know, much more recent And if you're familiar on an international scale, dental therapists are used internationally in many other countries. And it was uh, the initial dental therapists uh, were actually sent to New Zealand for training to become dental therapists and then brought back to Alaska to become dental therapists. But the ADA did react strongly to this and 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 some of the concerns you were expressed is what they expressed um, and sued the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium for bringing. Dental therapists to Alaska. And what we found through the dental therapy program, they were very conscientious in showing that it was not lesser care, that dental therapists with a limited scope of practice could provide equivalent care to dentists. And it was with a partnership with the University of Washington, you know, publishing that research in order to say dental therapists, I think, are the most obvious example. They have essentially. I think around 56 procedures that they do, a dentist may have well over 500 different procedures that they do, but those 56 procedures that the dental therapists do, they've shown is equivalent to a dentist graduating from dental school. Uh, So even restorative work, when they compare it objectively, it's equivalent to a dentist because what you're doing is training them with competency based in this limited scope that they can really do it equivalent. And it isn't lesser care than a dentist.
2: And one thing, Bob, about the outcomes, the studies that came out recently, one of the other parts of the study on the dental health therapist work that I found really inspiring, too, is not only are they providing equivalent or better care, but also it's had this preventive, you know, balance in the communities around dental hygiene generally. And could you talk about that a little?
0: Yeah, I think that. Uh... You know the dental therapists over 60% of the services they provide are preventative services and when you have a system that is not adequately addressing like dental needs the dentists did not have the capacity to provide that preventative care so they provided the preventative care and they actually have published studies where they actually raise the level of what dentists do in the community but the dentists now are doing higher level care because they have a, an extender who's doing the preventative care and doing much more preventative care um, so that the dentist can actually practice at a higher level than they did previously. And I could see the very similar thing happening within the legal profession that you know, the lawyers are now doing more complex cases that they could never get to previously because they had to deal with the whole scope of practice previously.
1: Becky, uh, Bob's comments, it seems to me, make a a fundamental point that I'd like to hear your thoughts on, which is in thinking about these huge uh, disparities and crises in service provision and trying to come up with innovative ways to deal with them, how you know which alternatives might work or are working becomes critical. Can you talk about the use of data and the use of outcomes analysis to make informed judgments?
3: We're really fortunate that in the United States, there are some kinds of this practice that are allowed in certain contexts. So if you are working in an unemployment claim, if you are trying to appeal the dial of your social security, if you are involved in lots of different kinds of immigration proceedings, they're already, they're not just advisors, they're advocates who are authorized to appear in those forums and, and advocate on behalf of other people. And then if we look at other jurisdictions like England and Wales, their legal advice isn't reserved to any specific profession. So lawyers have rights of appearance. They can they are the only people who can stand up at certain kinds of court, but but lots of different kinds of people can give you legal advice and they can do that in a nonprofit way or they can do it as their business. And there was a really fantastic study led by a fellow named Richard Borhead a few years ago looking at comparing the performance of lawyers working on specific tasks to the comparison of these specialized advisors working on specific tasks. And everybody makes mistakes in professional work. So both the lawyers and the and the non-lawyers messed up 20% of the time or so. But that means that both of them were getting it right 80% of the time, which is great. That's what we want. But the other thing that was really striking about that study, and it goes to a point that Bob made about the limited scope and the specialization, was that the non-lawyers actually were more likely to have their work rated excellent by anonymous peer reviewers than the traditional attorneys were. And it's not because they're better people or any of those things, but it's because they specialize in doing a particular kind of work, and they become really, really expert at that work. So it's a way of designing how we do work that actually can increase consumer protection and increase benefits to consumers. There's a lot of great possibility here.
1: Given the gargantuan size of the justice crisis, we obviously require multiple responses. The uh, community program that Bob and uh, Nicole have described as a terrific step, but uh, obviously other steps are going to be necessary to bridge the gap. And I'd like to talk about at least a couple areas of innovation, which I think have showed some promise. Bob, you've talked about the integration of medical and legal services. Could you talk a little bit more about it? What does it entail and how has it helped uh, address the needs of people who would otherwise be unserved or underserved?
0: Yeah. And that's where Nicole and I first started, uh, working together with the medical legal partnership, which I think has been fantastic. And we started at, I was with ANTHC at that time, Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium, and, uh, at the Alaska Native Medical Center, which is the largest tribal or IHS hospital in the United States in Anchorage here. And, uh. You know, many people come into the hospital, so it's an area of access, like Becky talked about previously, that there may be other areas of access, but many people come in with health harming civil legal needs. And we have social workers in the hospital, and we have uh, nurse discharge managers in the hospital, but having that expanded scope of having legal advocates and attorneys from Alaska Legal Services now at the hospital at uh, Alaska Native Medical Center to provide that resource has been incredible. And you know, our biggest referrals to the attorneys in the hospital come from the social workers and the discharge planners that identify needs that patients have related to eligibility issues, related to power of attorney, related to complex um, medical decision-making issues. And it seems like a, a great way where we have a large volume of people are coming in and also benefited us as an organization to employ those people in that position because uh, many of these individuals do not have financial resources to get help with any of these issues if they didn't get it while they were at the hospital and it would be great i I think we still have opportunity to expand that further because what they're doing is now uh, not necessarily a lot of preventive work though they are doing wills and trusts in the hospital when people come in you know if we can expand that partnership with the health care system to actually start doing a lot of the preventative work which you know would help alleviate these complex issues on durable power of attorney and medical decision making when someone comes into crisis in the hospital or wills and trusts and all that uh, to do that prior to them being in that crisis situation
1: nicole another area of innovation in the delivery of legal services in alaska and for that matter elsewhere is the development and use of technology to leverage scarce human resources. And you mentioned the really tiny number of people you have relative to the area you're trying to serve. So your lawyers and other professionals are often hundreds of miles, maybe even thousands of miles from potential clients and who may not even be accessible by overland uh, routes. But You know, you have to fly in uh, if you're going to try to see them face-to-face. So you've relied on technology. And I want to underscore that most of the innovations that you engaged in long predated the pandemic and really served as guideposts for modification needed during the pandemic. So could you summarize some of the uses of technology you've used in an innovative way to deliver services in Alaska?
2: Sure. And I guess just going back, like you said, you know, Because of the vast expanse of territory that we cover, Um, Alaska has for a long time, you know, our court system's been really great about allowing remote hearings and people connecting in in that way. Again, Alaska Legal Services, we have 12 different physical offices that are scattered across the state that are connected through technology and hub communities. So again, that's the way we've been doing business for like 40-something years. When the pandemic hit, we, like everyone else, needed to make some adjustments as well. And I think that the use of technology has really expanded during that time um, in ways that, you know, are going to benefit our our service populations collectively uh, much better. But I don't, uh, you know, I don't want people to walk away thinking, oh my gosh, we need like the fanciest technology that there is in the world to actually reach people in these vast places. Because oftentimes it's, you know, very expensive or people on the other end of it aren't going to have that technology. I just want to remind people that like the telephone is technology. We still have fax machines that we're using. And so thinking about technology advances are important and great and can move it forward, but also thinking about what you have and how people are really able to connect. Uh, we have communities, for instance, that, you know, there's still the best way to get information to them is to a fax machine because they have a, a community maybe of a uh, less than 300 people. And so we need to connect in that way. But on top of that, we are also working to develop more modern using, making use of more modern technology to make it easier for those who are able to be connected. And so one of the things we're working on right now with the TIG grant from LSC is something we're calling the benefactor. It's a web-based application that would allow case managers and other community helpers to help people who are trying to apply and get through the social security disability application process. So in Alaska, we have one of the highest rates of denials of SSI applications, SSDI, and a lot of that is just because the paperwork isn't completed properly in the applications. And so we are developing this web-based application that is intended to be used in spots like hospitals or with other uh, nonprofit providers, so the case managers there would have access to that that would help sort of streamline and systematize and give sort of a template about how you get through this really complicated process to make use of that and that's an example we're in the i think we have our minimal viable product out now and so we're testing it to improve it but it's sort of an example of using like high tech and low tech we anticipate that not everybody we serve not all of our clients are going to be able to be connected or be familiar enough with technology to use it fluently. So we want to be able to help the helpers, the people that are going to help them access services and embed the technology, the higher use technology in those settings. And still, but it's not going to displace the hands-on help that people need in addition. And we'll still keep our phone lines and fax lines going as long as uh, people are using them too.
1: Becky, final word, you spent a lot of time thinking about the relative efficacy of lawyers, non-lawyers, and digital tools to address often unmet legal needs. What are your thoughts on those various avenues? And, and again, how should decision makers, whether they're in government or uh, legal aid programs or uh, elsewhere, be thinking about them?
3: Well, I think what you hear from um, Nicole and Bob's description of the work that they're doing in Alaska and the way they've thought about it is that one size is not going to fit all there are lots of different kinds of contexts and they have different levels of technology and they have different levels of literacy and there are different kinds of people who are available to be helpers and extenders and so you want to have a you want to have a big palette of these different kinds of tools that you can use and models and you want to put them together in a way that makes sense for the needs of the people that you're actually hoping to serve So I think, as I said a moment ago, there are incredible possibilities here if folks are willing to be creative and to think about how to put a range of different kinds of tools together to achieve that end goal that all of us have, which is helping people actually achieve justice around these really critical issues in their lives.
1: Nicole, Bob, Becky, thank you for being with me today. More importantly, thank you for your leadership. The justice gap the justice crisis is immense as you've described is going to require courage and creativity and most importantly i think leadership in willing to blaze new trails in trying to address the crisis and you three are all leaders not only in alaska but for the rest of the nation so thank you for that and stay well
0: Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.